0: Hey, everybody. What's up? It's Chase. Welcome to another episode of the Chase Jarvis Live Show. This is where I sit down with amazing humans and I do everything I can to unpack their brains with the goal of helping you live your dreams in career, hobby, and life. My guest today is YouTube and design sensation Ben Ueda. Now, I'm going to go on the record right now and saying this is one of my favorite five episodes of all time, specifically because of the wisdom that Ben shares in the next Call it 50 minutes uh, of this uh, podcast. Now, uh, that's a big statement, but a little background on Ben. He stepped away from uh, an award-winning architecture firm that he co-founded. He left a a teaching position at an Ivy League school to create his own uh, personal brand and small media company focused on making design and designs uh, for everyday things, for that that you and I would love to make them affordable and accessible. Uh, millions of people use his designs. Have uh, paid attention to his YouTube channel, which is just so fun and pleasurable and insightful. But more than anything, what Ben I think delivers in this episode is not about his personal past, but about your ability to do what he's doing, to take the thing that is exciting in your life and make it a reality, make it the the thing that you do for a living and a life, making that accessible and connecting you with the creative process going to get you where you want to be. Now, I consider myself an expert in this and I felt like I was at the at the foot of a master in his ability to explain this. So I'm going to stop talking and let you enjoy this episode with Mr. Ben Ueda. One of the most powerful messages that you can hear are the three words, it is possible. Whatever your thing is, whether it's it's music, fine art, filmmaking, building a business, nonprofit work, you can build a living and more importantly, a life around that thing. Now, one of the most often overlooked aspects of success here not to mention a well-lived life is acquiring those skills that's why more than 10 years ago i founded creativelive.com this is the world's largest and best platform for creative and entrepreneurial education bar none that's the reason that i'm you know on my soapbox right now is because i believe so deeply in it this is where again tens of millions of people have already learned how to take action and affect their life for the better. Again, to pursue their passions, to create a living and a life in an area that they would love to spend their time. In addition to classes around photography, video, art, design, music, audio, there's also things like health and wellness, mindfulness, meditation. If you've been listening to the show for a while, you're aware that I used to encourage you to buy a class to try and transform one aspect of your life, and that was like 99 or 149 bucks, say. Now we've moved Creative Live to subscription first, so you can get access to more than 2,000 classes for roughly the same price of a single class just a year or two ago. An annual subscription is now just $149. That's right, that's a whole year. What is that like? 13 bucks for access to thousands of hours of super high-end learning content, all for one simple price. You can play annually or you can pay monthly, whatever works for you. Where do you do that? Go to creativelive.com slash creator pass. All right, that about wraps it up. Now let's get back to the show. Ben, thank you so much and welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. It's, uh, it's great to be here. I've listened to quite a few of these and it's slightly surreal and super pleasant to, to be involved.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Well, uh, I have been a fan of your work uh, that you, you know, you're uh, a guest we've worked hard to get on the show. And for good reason, and for the handful of people who uh, would be new to your work, or have been living under a rock for the last several years, as you've been being here everywhere on the internet, I was wondering if we could start off by you just sharing a little bit about you, your work in your own words, or what matters to you?
1: And why? Why do you do what you do? Just just get us oriented. Yeah, so I design things and rather than turning them into products, I basically share the process online. Primarily that's been done through YouTube, but as platforms sort of evolve, we do that through podcasts and Instagram as well. But it all came from the idea of a little bit of dissatisfaction with my background as an architect. As an architect, you design as a service. And I think that's how most people think of, of designers and a lot of creatives as service providers. And as, you know, as someone that's done Creative services for hire. You know that there can be a lot of frustration with dealing with the client, oh. your creative vision, <laughs> not being specifically words, no. what you're getting paid for, and you always feel like you're trying to you're trying to have a work life balance just within the context of work, where you're trying to have the the profit versus creative exploration. And I kind of think that there is a little bit of a conflict of, in, of interest when I was doing architecture as a service because. The more successful I became in my architecture career, the more prestigious the, the clients were. I wasn't trying to scale and design 10,000 homes a year. I was trying to design you know, 10 to 20 homes a year. But as I got more opportunities, our firm tended to pick clients that had a ton of money. And I would imagine it's not dissimilar for photography. It's not like you want to be exactly. doing photo exactly. shoots every day. You try to do the same quantity, but you scale the price. And when you scale the price, you narrow the type of people that you can provide that service for. And so my passion was sort of sustainable design and being concerned about sort of climate initiatives. And then I got to the point where I broke through as an architect. I was on the cover of magazines, but I was designing sustainable houses for like super rich people. And they're often like their second or third home. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like it was great. I'm like super proud of the work. But it's hard to really be like, you know, you get some awards for a sustainability achievement. You're kind of thinking in the back of your head, like, I'm kind of a fraud. Like, I'm doing this very specifically in a non-scalable way for super privileged people. And if they didn't hire me, they would have hired someone else really good because they have, like, tons of options. And so that's what actually started the, the interest in publishing content is it was that question of how do I design for people that can't afford to hire me? How can I publish design as a type of media and then monetize it, uh, as through marketing. And it was really my, I don't love business and I don't think that the term entrepreneur is particularly flattering as many these people sort of, you know, still try to sort of affix it to their bios. It's descriptive and it's an important term, but it's not an end all goal <coughs> of itself. But what it does give you is the opportunity to remix the sort of motivations and incentives, for the financial parts of your sort of work. And I said, well, what if I just started making things that were really simple, give the design away for free, and then on the media side, figure out a way to monetize that too. So remove the the conflict of interest between me and who I want to be having access to whatever I can do, and then try to figure out someone that has the pockets to pay for that process.
0: Incredible. And you are very adroit at describing that. And for uh, just so that the universe knows we're aligned and so that I can hitch my wagon to virtually here. Like that's exactly the mentality that I went through when trying to, you know, this is whatever, 15 years ago. Now trying to share what it is that I was doing in photography with the universe and hoping to help other photographers. Because I had just come out of that seat where I was struggling to figure it all out and didn't want to just be on the hamster wheel of the way it had been done before i thought there were maybe better ways and you know that's one of the things that first attracted me to your work is like we think the same i love how ben thinks you know how can we sort of untether ourselves from these traditional business models and approaches to making money and live a little bit of a a I guess more true uh uh business journey to what it is that are to match our values rather. Yeah. yeah, I don't know
1: if those were my words and or yours, but we're in that hyphenated class of some sort of creative profession and then entrepreneur. That's that's how you're often described. That's how I'm often described. And I think that there's a lot to unpack there, because when we when we see sort of what how entrepreneurs are sort of presented so often when I listen to you know podcasts and interviews of super high performing, really successful people. They often, their success is because they scaled something. And I think it's a little bit different for our cases is that the scaling isn't inevitable the way it is if you're creating an Uber or a Google or you're that kind of founder or entrepreneur. It's because scaling the creative can be a really challenging and really frustrating process that might lead to your falling out of love with the thing that got you there in the first place. Yeah. And it's when people go, what do you love designing? I'm like, it depends on the pace. I love designing. I don't I love designing houses. I love designing furniture. I wouldn't want to design a house every day. I'd maybe like to design a couple really good ones a year and I'd maybe like to design ten to twenty pieces of furniture a year. But that love completely goes away if the scale of how I'm forced to do it from the business side gets out of uh alignment with the sort of creative interest that got me there in the first place.
0: Yeah, and then therein lies the conundrum of in order to keep the pace at something that you enjoy then you have to scale the price and as you scale the price you narrow the field and that's the same you know challenge that you described in your very poignant intro that uh, again i identify with you want to work for companies that have more and more in, in the photography scene or whatever like bigger and bigger brands than Nikes and the apples and the googles and the and yet ironically the belief is that your creativity gets to thrive there but it becomes more a little bit performative and a little bit more safe and narrow. And at least it did for me, I'm wondering is, was that the same for you? Was it, or was it just the sustainability problem that when you scaled the price of something, you, you were limited from working with people that you wanted or, or the other vectors like the ones that I was just sharing.
1: I, I think there's some of both, right? Like, in my twenties and thirties, you're you're seeking to prove, or at least for myself, I was seeking to prove that I belonged at the table, and so that's where, uh, you know, getting into the schools that I wanted to get into, setting up my own firm, getting published in the magazines I wanted to be published in, and then when I started media, landing Home Depot as a client and things like that, they become really important touchstones, but. Often the, the most career sap, dissatisfaction that I've experienced came right after, like the day or week after you land that, that big thing that proved to you that you got the seat at the table, because then it's the, well, what next? Now what do I do? Yeah. And that's pretty consistent with most of the creative people that I sort of talk to that, that do what they love for a living where their biggest letdowns their most emotional vulnerability is often right after their these milestone successes because it doesn't change your life even as it changes your portfolio dramatically but with that comes increased pressure and the you you may have compressed years of time to working to land nike to land home depot as a client so you, you pack in all your research, all your best material, all your best ideas, years and years of work, go into that one project that then proves that you get the seat at the table. But then when that's over or and you think about what next is, are you really even if that project only took a few weeks to do, you're thinking, wait, is there another 10 year climb or battle to get the next significant step up? And so... I think the 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 sort of satisfaction challenge there is you know letting yourself sort of dial back after these things and go where was the most fun along the way uh what were the kind of uh adventures along the way that are worth revisiting now that i and and using that kind of achievement or those milestone markers as a way to relax on yourself not to push yourself even harder
0: this is for 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 those who are listening right now this is pure genius what's coming out of ben's mouth is is true this is what the future of your creative world can be should you tap into the success that i believe you're dreaming for yourself right now so i'm going to ask you to pay extra close attention to everything that ben says and i am i am it sounds like i'm jesting but this is i'm as serious as a heart attack right now what what the courage to have a milestone success and then to take a beat and understand what about that success was special to you and was different and that you'd like to create more of that is the path to fulfillment and again this is to to me one of the reasons i knew ben was going to be an insanely uh appropriate and awesome guest is because this is the kind of stuff that ben shares in his work it's not just the the end product but the process that he goes through and what you're hearing right now is a master at work at, at at deconstructing the process. You know he does it with designs on his you know social channels, but he's done this with his career, which I think is where true the true vision that Ben is bringing to the table right now. So I'm this is me telling you, listener, to, to double down and and you're gonna want to watch this a couple times. So if I may now, Ben, turn our attention to you. you talked about sort of some of the pitfalls and trappings of success and you started to go down the path of, so I started taking a beat and looking at what would be, you know, the, the alternatives. And I'm wondering if you can walk us through a little bit more with some specific examples if, if it makes sense to do so that you did when you, you know, you, you signaled early on that it was like, yeah. So I was like, instead of just doing services, I started taking a different approach. You mentioned media, you mentioned a handful of other things. So Talk to us about, you know, in a little more detail about how you deconstructed what the perfect career looks like for you uh, and one that it sounds like what you're saying and what I would
1: argue for is, is that that cultivates fulfillment, not just success. So once I decided that architecture was where I wanted to move away from, right. And I had worked so hard to get to the point where I could be considered a working architect that was credible, that was respected in their industry realized that i wasn't satisfied with that so i had to figure out what's next that's sort of the blank slate i realized that getting a certain level of credentials wasn't as satisfying as i had sort of hoped that it would be and i'm not that good of a planner but i trusted in the concepts of escalation and evolution and one of the the early things that fascinated me about the internet was i think it was when like ebay was like one of like the big things on the internet. I mean it probably still is. I just don't use it too much anymore. But I heard this story about a guy that started with the paperclip and he like traded it for a cigarette lighter and then traded it for a stapler and then traded it. Just kept escalating it. And with each trade he added a little more substance and value to his trade. And he traded it all the way up to a car and I think eventually a house. Yes. And I think that was the plan. It wasn't that I knew, okay, in five years I'm going to be here and then I'm going to be Designing these kind of things for this many people, I trusted in that idea that if I escalate my projects slowly and evolve them, and and double down on the ones that are really promising, and forget the ones that were horrible, messy failures. Um, if I just set on a productive path that escalates and evolves, and I can pay my bills at the same time, and I'm adding skills, it will win. It doesn't mean I know where I'm going to be in five years. I don't know how fast I'm going to evolve and escalate. But if I'm paying my bills, that means I'm not getting in debt. So that means I'll be better off financially uh, tomorrow than I am today. If I'm adding skills, that's only giving me more optionality and opportunities. And I switched my focus. So I realized that being an architect didn't give me as much satisfaction as I thought. Um, and instead, I was just sort of thinking of like, well, what, what do I actually want to be And I think in your twenties, you're so looking for that kind of credential is I want to be a working actor. I want to be a, a, an adventure photographer. I want to be a graphic designer for a luxury brand. Right. But those titles aren't that great. We've met artists that were douchebags. We've met photographers that were pretentious pricks. We've met architects that wear a lot of black turtlenecks and don't really have anything interesting to say. And I thought all, the people that I really like are, are two things. They're useful and they're curious. And like, I just have to be useful and curious. If I can do that and demonstrate both of those things, then I can follow that path of escalation and evolution. So the early projects, I just took a complete personal inventory and I didn't have much money. And um, I looked at like the tools and sort of Assets that I had and I had my hands. I had like a, a drill and I started just making things out of you know trash and things that I that I found. I made like a vase by cutting a wine bottle in half. And then I made a stool uh, where I poured a little bit of concrete into a five gallon bucket, stuck three sticks in and then flipped that out and then kept escalating those projects. And what was really fascinating is that people were building them and then sharing them. And I was like, oh, wait, I can actually deliver design without ever patenting something, without ever dealing with manufacturing, without ever dealing with the compromises that come with outsourcing something. And with the bucket stool, I realized that this thing had gotten built on six different continents. It was getting built all over the world by people I had never actually met. But just by publishing that YouTube video... It was like a three to four minute video that showed people how to make something. I could reach both the high end of the market. uh, Supermodel Kokorosha has one in her home. And then they're also used for like seedings in schools in Uganda and everywhere in in between. I think someone even made one uh, with ice to use for ice fishing, but they just froze the water and stuck the sticks in. (laughs) So that was a really interesting sort of breakthrough where I realized that I could build small projects that reach a lot of people. And then from there, I just slowly increased the scale of the projects, much similar to starting with the paperclip and ending up with the house. And so over the years, I went from three-legged stools to full furniture sets and sofas. Uh, I added new skills along the way. Uh, I started with kind of woodworking and basic DIY and glue gun kind of stuff. Then I learned how to weld. And then I learned how to cut stone. And then I learned how to, how do I integrate robots and 3D printing into the things? And just slowly escalated, signed on brands like Home Depot, and the initial things I did with even Home Depot were like so creatively terrible. Like the first thing I ever did with them, pay, paid like my designer friends just gave me an unending amount of shit because, you know, you're coming from like an architecture world. You're all modern. You wear a lot of black. You're like look really sleek. Your home super minimalist, like a like a like a Bond villain. And right. the first thing they had me do was to do this like DIY Christmas tree workshop where I was like cutting really tacky Christmas trees out of out of uh, plywood and painting them green. But I was a good good soldier, built that relationship, and then they kept trusting me with bigger projects. We did a solar powered workshop, which was really awesome. It got to, The first time I got this really bring my sustainability interest into this kind of DIY space. That video did really well. And then two years later, they commissioned what was our biggest video project to date, which was to do a complete docu-series on a shipping container home. Um, so we we built a shipping container house out in Joshua Tree. We made a complete series that shows how to get permits, how to build it, how much it will cost, why we did this and not this. It totally blew up, did about 20 something million views. And it's sort of like the the biggest thing that sort of is the house that started with the, the, the vase and it's really encouraging there's no way i could have planned on day 1 okay here's how i'm going to do a path towards where i'm building whole houses that are really innovative and interesting on the internet and i have the funding for it and i have the audience to support the funding and all these things but all i had to do was escalate one project to a slightly more complicated one and add skills along the way if i would have sat down and said okay i'm going to need to learn how to how to weld and they need to learn more about structural stuff, how to pour, reinforce concrete, build foundations, all these kind of things. It would have been so daunting. But if I just kept designing bigger projects along the way, I slowly added those skill sets and I was able to monetize those projects along the way. So I could kind of grow to the opportunity, not just sort of demand it and try to figure it out from scratch.
0: Absolutely incredible. And this is, again, this is pure fire for anyone who aspires to Be your own boss and create not just a living and a life and some success, but actual fulfillment too. This is a recipe. This is the best blueprint maybe I've heard in a show and we've done hundreds of episodes. So this attention to what makes your heart sing and the belief, this trust, um, I just read something about confidence the other day and confidence is believing that you can put yourself in a situation and figure it out or survive to do it again and then in the next iteration figure it out and that when you've done that a couple of times um i think that you know this this uh the way even the way that you're speaking about it there's a certain trust in the process and so what my my question you know, my note here to myself was uh you know how did ben start to trust himself to do this because right now i'm going to try and put my head in some of the listeners, you know, someone's jogging down a bike trail right now or riding their bike down a bike trail or sitting on a park bench thinking, cool, but, boy, I don't have as much time as Ben did to figure it out. Or I don't have, you know, there, they're, we we go into this process of catastrophizing, we go into the process of, of uh, you know, I don't have enough. And so I'm hoping you can share some of the things that you've done along the way to trust your ability to land on your feet and figure it out, to be able to incrementally you know, uh, increase each of the, the, the scale and quality of the project that you're doing. And, you know, isn't there pressure in there in and of itself? So how did you learn to trust yourself? Was that innate or was that learned?
1: Um, a little bit of both. I don't have that much confidence that things will succeed. I try to just look for things that, uh, have a, a high ceiling, but a high floor, right? So for for my sort of personal, like emotional approach to risk-taking is I'll take the risk if I know that I won't die or I won't lose everything that I own. Um, and so I, I've always built confidence by analyzing the downside. And that's why I sort of like to start with sort of small pieces of furniture, because even if I make something and publish it on the internet and people are just like, you're not even afraid of negativity. you're afraid that just no one will notice or care, right? So that's why my early projects were based around things I could actually use. That's how I sort of minimized the the downside risk is that, well, I need some seating for this, so I'll build that. I'll publish it and do the extra work, but all I'm risking is the extra time it took towards making the video content part of it. I get a useful thing at the end of it. Uh, where if I would have started with trying to build a shipping container house for an online video series, and put hundreds of thousands of dollars and months and months of time into it, that risk at the point where that enterprise couldn't sustain itself would have been dramatic and financially devastating. So I'm not that confident that things will work out. I've tried a lot of things that haven't. Um, I had a dabbling in sort of tech where I went out and raised about a million dollars by giving a PowerPoint presentation. Had people telling me I was super smart, and tended to believe them. And then two thousand and eight happened, and I realized, oh, I was much more of a product of great circumstances. Um, so, I think that's that's my sort of approach to building confidence. And that's why I think the escalation and evolution is so important. It's not setting out to do this massive thing. It's setting out to have a consistent escalation in rewards as you acquire the skills along the way. I wasn't ready and didn't have the abilities to to build big significant projects myself when when I started. I needed sort of that 5 to 6 years of practice and escalation to get to the point where that was appropriate. You have to build those muscles, you have to build the 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 memories and you have to build the sort of experience to get there. So, I'm not that confident. I even when I do so many things, I kind of expect them to 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 not work out. But I have enough confidence to give it a shot after I sort of say, okay, what's the worst case scenario? Mitigate against that, make sure it's within sort of good financial planning. And that's how I build confidence in a very timid way. Brilliant. It's so, uh, it's so like,
0: one, you're incredibly articulate. And two, it doesn't surprise me at all that you've cultivated the success that you have because there's a thoughtfulness. Clearly, there's a thoughtfulness in your approach and also your awareness. Now, what is different, what I notice of the many things that you do that's different than so many of the folks out there on the internet is the uh, there is an element of you that is so well embedded in your projects. Like you said, I had a drill, therefore I, you know, and so what what, what are the qualities of Ben? You know, just enough confidence. He protected the downside. He has a drill. Like these are so simple, but they're so like that awareness of what you have and what you could do, I I believe is in part of your genius. You're choosing the things. How do you choose what parts of you are in action when you're making decisions on what to do next? Is it head? Is it heart? Is it both? Is it curiosity? You mentioned that earlier intuition. What are some of the words that you use? And how do you think about what to do and not to do besides just mitigating the downside? Because clearly you got interested in something and then you said, okay, what about this product can I, can I minimize the downside for? Versus like, of all the things I could do in the world, what has low downside? You didn't do it that way. You did it the former. So I'm wondering what goes into um, to you choosing those things? And it's clearly there's a, a piece of you in all of this,
1: yeah, there was there was some point where I think we reached peak TED talk. I'm not sure exactly <laughs> when that was, but it happened at some point, right? Like I've at, seen yours, at, right? At, at some point, <laughs> like TED was such an amazing thing early, and I, and, I'll, and i get, this this leads into your thing. And then I used to watch like every TED talk that came out, and it was I was starving for that kind of insight from these like world class performers uh i consumed a lot of your early content a lot of tim ferris stuff like that right because the internet created access to these world-class performers but then it suddenly dawned on me that i might not be world-class at anything um and there's way more people that aren't world-class than Mm world-class so not everyone it's, it's my problem with that book the secret uh is that yes everyone that kind of achieves some level of success has a good amount of self-belief but there are a lot of people that I've met along the way that aren't world-class performers that have way too much self-belief and I don't so much worry about them I worry about their sort of friends and family and stuff like that that seeing them sort of go on this deluded journey and so early on in with sort of the internet there seemed to be so much inspiration coming from the top down where we are looking at the best people in the world and like that's like, if you can have like body images problems by looking at, you know, genetic freaks and uh, for both men and women, uh, you know, if that can be damaging, certainly there can be career and emotional damage by consuming all this content from the greatest people in the world. I don't want Yo-Yo Ma to be my cello teacher. I want someone that struggled with reading music and someone that's struggled with uh, being tone deaf to kind of teach me how to do something like that. So somewhere as I sort of became more internet literate, I realized that uh, man, maybe maybe there's a way to start from the bottom up. And so much of my inspiration doesn't come from what's great. I love the work of the world's greatest architects. I love like Zaha Hadid, Bjarke Ingels. They are inspiring in their own way. But what I find personally inspiring are shitty strip malls, because there's so many more of those. And I may never be as good as BRK or Zaha. They're like once in generational talents. I might not be that. Maybe I will, but I shouldn't plan on that. But I can make a better strip mall. I know I can do that. I'm so confident that I could take this dilapidated piece of shit with a run out, you know, that was used to be a blockbuster, blockbuster and now is a place where people get blooming onions. I could make a better version of that. Um, and so a lot of my inspiration starts with the proliferation of terrible design not trying to do a shittier version of great design. Um, and I think their world is rich with inspiration if you look at it that way. If we just, whatever you do, fashion, photography, graphic design, every day you probably see things that just drive you insane because of how bad and thoughtless they are. Every one of those terrible things that you see where you have a path to doing better is a place to prove your place in the world. It's a way to show that like, I can make the world better because I made this thing that's crappy into something that's less crappy. Doesn't have to be genius. Doesn't have to do. That. Just has to be less crappy. And if all you did was to take, uh, you know, everything around you and make it just a better version of that, even if you never leave your hometown, you never do that, you have made the world a better place. And that is a unrelenting source of inspiration. Is all the terrible shit that's around us that we see every single day
0: i love it and all of my favorite thinkers and doers there's this bit of sort of counter in, in, intuition that you just uh, I, I again i like the word ooze you just ooze this um because right now there's a young architect saying i just want to you know do the next uh building with a ski area on top of it like Bjarka. yeah and and just this idea and there's a both a humility, a practicality, but also pure genius in reverse reversing that mentality. And you know, again, you mentioned our uh, Tim Ferriss, which a friend on the show all the time. But, like Tim is constantly not saying like, "Cool, I'm going to look at the long distance running athlete who came from four generations of long distance running a- athletes and has all these characteristics." He's like, "Who's the 220 pounds you know, a yeah. uh, former, you know, former outside linebacker who turned himself into a ultra marathoner, because that is yes. like someone who's been successful, but doesn't have all of the, you know, the, the, the notches on, on the belt or the accolades or this, the, the whatnot. So I really appreciate that about you. And I think that the folks who are listening and watching should uh, do a little gut check in there. I wanted to circle back on some of the, a couple of the things that you've mentioned, and I wanted to go a little bit deeper on them. Um, one, you talked about shifting the model, right? When you don't have clients yeah. anymore, um, you have to make money, and you talked yeah. about rather than, um, you know, how can you? Uh, I guess let me look at the the way that you, you said the words. How do you design for people who can't afford to hire you? And mm-hmm you had to reinvent a new business model rather than chasing the next mega commission on a multi-million dollar home. So what did you actually do? How do you actually make money? And I'm using this not as a necessarily a yeah. recipe for someone to go. I'm not suggesting that if you're a listener right now, you're, you're going to go try and replicate exactly what, what this fine gentleman has done, but mostly to draw inspiration in, how to think differently about the process. And maybe you can apply a similar pattern or structure to your uh, area of interest, whatever that might be. But so Ben, I'm wondering if you you can talk to us a little bit about how you deconstructed what was possible based on maybe seeing things out there in the world and then what you ultimately decided to do and if that was good, bad, or indifferent, or are there other things you learned along the way?
1: So yeah, I was, well, let me start with how I make money uh, over the last like six or seven years and most of it's around YouTube Is I'll make a video on YouTube that shows how to make a table and I'll often show it with a limited amount of power tools so one of my favorite projects is I show how to make a complete dining table out of one sheet of plywood using just a circular saw a drill and orbital sander. So the cost of the tools and the materials is less than the cost of a way crappier table from Ikea that's made out of less quality materials. And that was, Ikea was always sort of my benchmark because they're a brilliant company that makes fantastic things. So that was the premise that I started with. And then the work was to sort of prove whether or not I could deliver on that premise is, can I use the internet and the supply chains of Home Depot to create a better furniture offering than this massive company that has a huge design budget in the form of Ikea, uh, I can, and do that at, I've done that successfully at times, but not always. They're still, they still beat me on a lot of things cause they're really good at what they do, but it was great to sort of provide that option. So that was the premise and the kind of internal challenge. Then I sort of thinking about, well, who are all the stakeholders that would provide assets and resources along the way? So I did here's the things I would use and the things that would be on camera, tools, materials. Um, and then I sort of reached out to Home Depot and I reached out to Ryobi. I didn't ask for sponsorship. I asked for just an interview to sort of ask them about how they spend money on marketing and what kind of metrics do they look for return on that. And what I quickly discovered saying, was... Did you,
0: you, this is presumably you do not call 1-800-HOME-DEPOT. So what, uh, what DM's, on, DM,
1: DMs on Instagram and cold emails. Um, Bingo. So more and more it's done through the DMs on Instagram. Um, and, but that's a lot easier once you build up a little bit of following and get that sort of check mark. But early on, it was just emails. And what I sort of asked them was, or what I discovered was how much money they spend not on ad buying, but just on the production of content. And this was the the, the sort of thing that I discovered early on is that, when Home Depot puts a commercial on an HGTV show, let's say like the Property Brothers. So everyone knows, okay, you got to buy that slot. You have to buy the time on that Super Bowl Bowl ad. But what you also have to do is pay for the production of the assets. And what I discovered was companies like Home Depot were often spending more money to make a 30-second video that wasn't designed for anyone to want to watch it. It was just designed to sort of be all call to action. And you had to watch it because it's on television and it's in the break. And so what I realized that my offering, when I had no following was I couldn't offer the replacement for the ad buy, but what I could offer was a replacement for the production at no risk. And that's what I sort of offered initially was look, you spend a lot of money on video and it's really risky. And then you have to spend a lot of money for people to watch that video. Send me some of your tools. If, and I'll make videos with your tools in them. If it gets a certain number of views, then you tell me what that's worth and we can see if we can work out a sponsorship. And that was the sort of approach that I had, I think like yeah, maybe like six or seven years ago. And I'm still working with RYOBI and Home Depot to this day. And it's always based on the same sort of dynamic. I ask them, where are you currently spending money? What are the benchmarks? How do you measure it? And then I say, well, we can make this very unrisky for you by saying you only pay me if we beat these benchmarks. And then it sets really clear business goals for me. And I have as many creative shots to hit those numbers as as it takes. Um, And what I felt comfortable was doing is putting a lot of pressure on me to build and design creative stuff, because that's the fun part. Um, And I just wanted to sort of know that there was light at the end of the tunnel from a business standpoint, and that I was working towards metrics that were useful and valuable to other people. So I know I had the curiosity part to explore, try new tools, try new materials, experiment with things in different ways. I just want to make sure I was doing that in a way that was useful to someone other than myself.
0: And to fill in what is, I think, uh, operating in the background, but to bring it to the foreground, you know, Ben talked about not having clients as you would in architecture, but your clients end up being is the end viewer, because certainly RYOBI or Home Depot, they are the ones who are actually ultimately will be writing a check. And so there's a certain amount of of, uh, responsibility, but notice that you've sort of almost decentralized uh, or alleviated the responsibility to Home Depot and move that over to people who, you can connect with through making creative choices all on your own. I think that's a subtle but powerful distinction between you're not going to Home Depot and Home Depot saying, here's what we want the video to look like. It needs to be this tall, this wide, this long, have this many X shots and this many Y shots in it. No, you're saying, cool. I'm going to, if, if we hit this benchmark and I'm going to go to the audience and I'm going to try and get them to over this benchmark of views or conversions or whatever the metrics you'd agree to. And I think there's a, I don't know if you if you agree with that, but there's a distinction in what kind of a client it is, and you're ultimately making things for for humans rather than a, a, it's it's a little bit less of a business decision. But knowing that they spend money to do those things, there was a great genius there as well.
1: yeah, it's it's interesting. the There's no such thing as complete creative autonomy. and nor do I think I particularly want that or or deserve that. i I, I like some of the constraints. Um, and that's why I think the useful and curious thing is such a potent combination is I want to be useful to the people that are collaborating with me. Um, I don't have to be brilliant, earth shattering, everything's brand new, never been seen before all these kind of really hyperbolic kind of uh, uh, categories for my design because so I just want it to be useful. I want people to like it um, and I want them to sort of take action from it. What was sort of interesting with sort of working in this model where I share design, it's almost like a recipe, right? If you're Toll House and you want to sell more chocolate chips, you would make sense to invest in developing the best chocolate chip cookie recipe, publishing that on Pinterest, Instagram, everywhere else, TikTok videos, and then, you know, always just sort of including that. You might as well build useful content that has the perfect call to action. And that's what I think is so interesting on on the internet. And this term influencer kind of gets thrown out a lot. And I actually kind of don't mind it. If there's you know as much as there is you know a lot of ass selfies and and stuff like that involved with or associated with it. The I'd much rather be influential than just entertaining. And that's why even in a lot of my videos, there's not a lot of personality from me as a human. There, hopefully, there's some personality and. And style and the designs themselves, but, uh, I'm not trying to be super, you know, charismatic on camera. I just want to be kind of matter of fact, here's a recipe to ha- how to build something. And what I like about that is that it, I don't want to convince people with a force of personality that this is the table they should build. I want to sort of just be like, do I want that? No, not really for me. Okay. I'll wait for the next video. Maybe that's a little more of my style. Um, but that was important because it kind of aligns the, the various interests involved. I want to do a good job of promoting the products for my brand partners who are, are paying me to do so. I also want to do a good job uh, providing design options for the, the viewers, and it should never feel like you're letting me down, this person you've developed an emotional att- attachment to if you don't go out and buy this drill or this thing it should really just be here's a recipe for something that you might like oh you don't like coconut this isn't the right cookie for you right you want to wait for the chocolate chips that's coming soon eventually we'll get to you and that just took a little bit of the pressure off of trying to be over connected to the audience or overly influential in a coercive way it just lets me be really matter of fact about what the call to actions is which gives you a lot more peace of mind when you are going to do something for a long period of time. Awesome. Let's talk about the right now. There is
0: someone who is, is very compelled by what you are saying, and then there is this some, some uh, business school uh, scar tissue, or you know, their their grandfather who was you know raised in the depression, taught them to do maximize everything, and there is some folks who, who are questioning something and that is hey man you it's great to give these great designs away, but you're leaving so much on the table then why aren't you chasing maximization of your shipping container business or the dining room table that you mentioned like you could be you know selling plans you know for that on the internet and make a dollar every set of plans and if you can sell a million plans rather than one plan for a million dollars would that's also like there's someone who's saying, talking about maximizing. And so why, why do you give your best designs away? And why don't you try and maximize the value of it, extracting everything you can from each product?
1: Well, I guess if you're a chef, you could make more money by starting the next Chipotle than you could by actually making food that's amazing. Um, and no no shade on Chipotle. Chipotle is awesome, right? Like the escalation from Taco Bell to Chipotle is a, and they're both like readily available. That's a really good one. Like Chipotle, like mm-hmm. changed the game. But if you're a chef, do you really want to create Chipotle? You would make way more money if you built that next chain. But what does that mean for your actual lifestyle? And are you trying to make money off of something that, like how many burrito innovations are you really going to be excited about? Now, if you're doing Chipotle just so you create the freedom so you can create the ultimate farm to table, kind of like Blue Hills uh, experience, then it might be really worth it. So the question about sort of money and sort of escalating and scaling is being like, well, what would I do with that money? Uh, I have some pretty clear goals. Like, My goal is to build a compound uh, just outside of Santa Barbara where I have an avocado tree in my kitchen. I like to have avocado toast for breakfast, so I think the coolest thing ever would be to take the avocado that's growing right inside the kitchen, not just like a little plant in a hydroponic, like a whole freaking tree. Uh, You probably need two of them so they can cross pollinate. So that's the height of consumption. I don't want anything more than that. I can't afford to build that just yet because land in Santa Barbara is pretty expensive, but I think I'll be able to get there soon. So everything comes in, every economic uh, decision comes in either moving that goal closer in the timeline or being satisfied, well, I'm having a lot of fun and I don't know how to design the right sort of indoor system that provides enough light and water. So the question is, is I only need to make as enough money that they have ideas with how to spend it. And the minute you get into sort of making money for the sake of money, I mean, you know, a lot of wealthy people and some of them are really happy and really clever with how they consume and some of them aren't. But Here's the thing that I see is really consistent. People talk so fondly about their college days or the sleeping on the couch startup days. You talk to founders of like massive companies and they love to regale you with like stories of when they were struggling and their, you know, their their desk was uh, an old door on two sawhorses and they, you know, were eating Top Ramen. That was probably when they were most engaged with the process because it was also probably when they were... The world was the most unpredictable and they were they were growing their skill sets and their tool sets the fastest i always think the best part of every superhero movie is when they just learn their powers and are just kind of experimenting and testing before they have the pressure of saving the world that's the really stressful part once you have the whole weight of the world on your shoulders even though you have all the powers and you have them all at your fingertips it's not as much fun as when you're just being like wait can i jump off this building and that's what the early stages are So I've had like different sort of success cycles along the way. And again, the most empty feelings I felt were sort of like right after you you finally got something that you weren't looking past. And so now I keep it pretty simple, is we're always gonna leave money on the table. And the most efficient people that I meet are not the most interesting. I know so many people that live their lives through spreadsheets and they wake up and they drink this many ounces of water and they have this many grams of protein and they have this many things and they're just control and precise. I have some engineering friends that love living that way. And if that fits your personality where everything has to be measured, everything has to be maximized, great. But that's not the people I wanna have dinner with. So why would I wanna live my life like somebody I wouldn't wanna hang out with? Um, I like the people. Everyone loves, everyone I know that's creative loves Anthony Bourdain. And it's not because he was had the best restaurant, and he ran this this this, you know kitchen staff with like maniacal precision, and every meal was perfect. It was because he just roamed the earth and had adventures. And so, if you have enough money where you can do kind of some silly stuff, like you can leave some stuff on the table if it makes life cooler. Like I I was talking to. so we have actually been scaling some of these things. So it's like when I built the shipping container house, I got approached by some investors to to expand that container house into a shipping container hotel. So I brought in a business partner, a young guy, uh, Ivy League educated, background in finance, exactly what you would think. Super smart, just driven, like, and just like scale. He wants to, by by 30 years old, he wants to get to thirty million dollars. I'm like, why? Tell me. Please tell me. Like how that is not a completely arbitrary thing that in no way will necessarily make your life better more than two million dollars which is still pretty lofty and amazing um and he doesn't really have a good answer other than that feels like what it takes to play in the social circles that he wants to be in uh and i'm like well i'll introduce you some people that made 30 million dollars off of bitcoin that really aren't that interesting they were they have they have the receipts they have the money. But people aren't pounding down their door to sort of, you know, go to dinner parties with them or to pick their brain. They're not necessarily the most loved people in their community. Uh, they're people that were opportunistic and they got those numbers. They secured the bag. So congrats to them. That's that's awesome. And they had some vision to do it. But that's, that's not compelling. I would much rather hang out with someone that created something original and did well with it than someone that made, you know, $30 million on Dogecoin. Although the memes are pretty tight,
0: <laughs> well said. Um, for those of you who, uh, if you haven't um, looked Ben up like five times already, then we've done a bad job because this is this is some super compelling stuff. Um, Homemade Modern uh, is your YouTube channel, and I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about you know how you think about your channel as an expression of you yourself, this, this vision. If you think about it as just a distribution platform or is it a piece of you and your brand um, talk to us about the it, channel i think it's just awesome and, and right now you, people are, are tapping with using their thumbs and looking it up and um you know the shipping container stuff is, on there is, is just awesome uh tour your loft etc
1: yeah youtube was really important early um i would say from like maybe like three years ago I've become less and less in love with the the platform. Um, I think it's an amazing platform that does a lot of good. But I've been doing it for a really long time, like six or seven years. So I think early on it was you know this, this race to try to get to a million subscribers because subscribers used to be really important. And then at some point you get that. And again, this is like, okay, hit this milestone. You have some videos that pop off. You have other videos that don't. And more and more it was... Why do I wanna keep growing? Why do I wanna keep scaling the media side? And so once you get to sort of 500,000 to a million, you're like, okay, I can add a team, but do I want a team? Like right now my team is like three to four or three and a half people. It's me, my younger sister, Jessie, um, and then Brett who manages the sort of shop and helps out with a little bit of production. And that's it. I don't have meetings. I don't have to sit down with the staff. I don't have to worry about utilization of employees uh everyone's family, uh but either literally or figuratively. And what I saw with my previous sort of tax exploits was there's a certain point where the tail wags a dog, where you build a team to scale your sort of growth. But if you're already at a point where you're living really comfortable and you have like great quality of life, why are you scaling beyond that to the point where your that scale makes you vulnerable to market fluctuations? when i did sort of a tech company which where we became the largest supplier of home designs in the country had like a team of like 10 to 12 people when the you know 2008 housing market crashed it was an agonizing year where i had to lay people off work ridiculously hard with an uncertain future and with youtube once i got to the point where it was lucrative i was like and a lot of the other sort of people at a similar level were being like okay now we're building out media teams so it's like we got two videographers, editors, and we're going to crank it out. And we got to make a video every single week. That was about or the time. Or
0: every Once single hit, day.
1: Yeah. Some people yeah, go no, into every shit. day.
0: And just like, you know, kind Shout of. Shout out to Robotic.
1: Casey Neistat, right? Like, man, yeah. man, I loved following his journey. But like, uh, you know, I, I love that he also said like, okay, I can't do this anymore. Right? Like that that kind of uh, ability to, to sort of pull back when you need to. So I knew from previous things, I didn't want to build out this massive team. Uh, I'm so grateful for what YouTube has given. It's given me a real stable sort of base. But now I think what I'm more interested in is not the weekly grind. And so I got completely off of schedule. I'm sort of very opportunistic. I either publish something when I have a sponsor or when I have an idea that no one wants to sponsor, but I think is important. And those are the only two sort of rules for when and why. Um, I kept the production really minimal and then that lets me sort of focus on big projects that I'm now excited about. You get this or you can't, for me at least, I can't do the same thing year after year after year and be equally excited about it. I can only build so many coffee tables and you know pieces of furniture. So I needed the escalation to keep myself sort of involved. And the shipping container uh, house project was a lot of fun because it was, it was so different and so big. I launched that on a completely different uh, channel, the Modern Home Project. And so now what I'm sort of interested with YouTube is it's this great publishing thing. I don't want to work for YouTube. One, the profit sharing isn't really in our favor as creators. It's definitely in sort of Google's favor. Um, You aren't in complete control of it. So it becomes this sort of baseline way to like stabilize and be like a nice sort of lucrative piece of the puzzle. But more and more, I'm like, I should use this as a stepping stone to building things that I have true complete equity ownership in, not something where I kind of own it. Um, you don't really ever own your channels on social media. You are have a terms of service agreement that allow you to profit from them, but I don't want all my eggs to be in that basket. So What I like is using that as a launch point. I have enough audience where if I have a great idea, it'll reach everyone that it needs to. Um, And I don't want to focus on to be growing the audience to where mediocre ideas, you know, can, will excel just from the momentum of the platform. I don't want to be the rock or Kevin Hart, right? Like I want to be, when I have something great to say, I want it to be, that's what carries it. And that's what, kind of the way the platform performs is you can do a video that gets 50,000 views and then you can do a video that gets 5 million views. And it really depends on is the content, is the thumbnail engaging? It does the content. Once you click on that thumbnail, deliver on the promise of the thumbnail. And, but more and more, I'm thinking, okay, okay, I built this media platform. I have a good sized audience now why should I work towards more audience or should I work towards more density of alignment? And now that I have that audience, I'm like, okay, I don't have an excuse not to bring the issues that are important to me back into it, affordable housing and sustainability early in my career. I was more interested in the sustainability part. As I get older, I sort of realized that that needs to be tempered with sort of affordability. And as someone from California that now lives in California affordable housing is I think one of our biggest problems and all, a lot of of the homeless issues and stuff like that trickle down from it. And it's not a simple problem. It's, I think it's even as complex as as sort of climate challenges are because it involves sort of regulation and involves supply chains and involves like physical labor and involves like land uses and where are we going to run out of water? Um, So now I think I'm at the sort of stage where I'm less interested in sort of media growth and more interested in like, how do I sort of add more density of the issues that are important to me into this sort of media that I'm already creating. Wisdom, man, it's just like
0: a firing range right here of just knowledge bomb. Uh, I truly, and, and again, I'm, I'm, I realize that this is like the third time I've said it, but your ability to articulate the the solutions to your the problems that you've created through success and through opportunity are really been very very talented at this. I, I'm deconstructing many of my own experiences now and putting through the lens of what you're sharing with with me, and I have to say that so many of my decisions are were paralleled that and didn't have a good explication for them so um, thank you thank you for that and again this the 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 escalation and evolution to me this is something that should be this is this is like a mantra that I would ask listeners to adopt this idea of just growing and it's not only it's not only linear right I'm sure there was somewhere you, you escalated and then you had to De-escalate a little bit and uh, just yeah. a forward. You know, one step back, kind of a mentality. Um, so we talked about you know leaving opportunity on the table. You you know you had incredible insight there. Talked about building the media platform, partnerships, the relationship that you have with social media. Uh, I want to go way back to what I would consider the beginning, and we'll try and make up a full circle here. Um, part of what I coach to anyone who pays attention to the things that I do uh, is is one particular thing, and I'm I'm, I'm gonna throw it out there and I want you to respond to it authentically and say, chase your full shit, or no, I believe that. And there's a starting point, and I use the term mastery in, in my book, Creative Calling, to talk about it. I don't think mastery is necessarily required, but I think it's something near mastery in an area where what you said early on in our conversation got you a seat at the table. It allowed you to have a point of view that other people were willing to listen to and you had enough either letters after your name or videos to your name or followers or money in the bank or some sort of a marker that allowed you to get in the room or to be a part of the conversation. And I personally have have no instruction to anyone on what that should be for them. I don't care if it's you are the fastest Lincoln log assembler, or you are a, you know, nuclear physicist, and you invented a new way for space travel. Like I don't actually care what the thing is, or if it's the best macaroni and cheese noodle on the planet. Some understanding of, uh, of greatness or mastery in any area allows you to more easily deconstruct areas that you in which you choose to operate or want to move, and it, it can get you a seat at the table. And I would, I would step back from my concept of of striving to mastery on any of these things, but I want to know for you, this was architecture used a very clear example. So if I'm looking to create a kernel of advice for someone who's interested in pursuing the life that you've created for yourself or something similar with their own on their own terms, how important is being, having some fortitude, real legitimate fortitude in a single area before you know, trying to boil the
1: ocean, for example. So I agree with, like, I really like the word mastery, right? Because that really, to me, that signifies the personal internal pursuit of betterment, right? That you have this goal of becoming a master craftsperson for whatever you choose to do. The mistake I think that people make in interpreting that word is that competency to a lot of people is mastery, right? Like, there's so many times where just competency is a joy in of itself. I think In N Out Burgers is like a great example. Are they master chefs? Are there? No. But are they just so competent and consistent at creating a burger? They are. It's like, and at that price point, it's a great experience. And so, mastery, when you sort of are setting out sort of a path or a roadmap to mastery, and if you're in that industry, architecture or photography, and you're looking at the world's greatest ones, again, you might be like, "Oh, I'm so far from mastery." But you're really just trying to get to the point where the people that you're serving, the people that are actually benefiting from your work, what's competency to you might be mastery to them. Right? So, a, you know, every time I have a In-N-Out burger, I feel like it's a type of mastery. I objectively know that there's higher levels of cuisine, but that is what I want at that moment. So if you're one of these creative professions, don't be dissatisfied with your competency because that is mastery to someone else and to someone that doesn't have access to that kind of creative potential. Like if I make a better strip mall that makes that community like a more engaged place that's more pedestrian friendly and people hang out there, it doesn't matter if that doesn't win the Pritzker Prize what matters is it made that it's mastery to that community. It's physically important. It takes up space. So I think mastery as an internal sort of pursuit for self-betterment that will never, ever, ever end uh, is an amazing, inspiring thing. Mastery as feeling as something you have to prove to your peers can be very detrimental uh, where you're constantly comparing yourself to people that might have just 10 or more years ahead of you. If you're always comparing that, yourself to people that have been doing it longer, it can be really hard to catch never, up.
0: <laughs> right. No, I think that's an interesting <laughs> distinction. And to be fair, uh, I, I define mastery as mastery over the material and your right. ability to live within that space. So like, I can walk onto any set and find what the best lighting or a, a high quality of lighting is going to be in a very short amount of time because of experience. You're going to be able to manipulate the situation with your resources, personal knowledge, and you know the universe and you can work your way around it. That's not to say there's not more to learn or there are not people who are better than you. So it's more about your relationship with the material than it is your relationship to other people who've been doing it a long time. So I think your answer then dovetails nicely, with there's this uh, uh, competency and proficiency with the material so that you're not thinking about what chord is this again, while I'm playing the guitar. It is like, I can't. You don't have to look
1: directly at the thing that you're doing. When you're kind right. of like that, that is a great, that's a joy into itself. I think that's why people like surfing is like, once you yeah. get over to part where you're like trying to balance or trying to get up on the board or trying to figure out the right angle to catch the wave and you're just doing it and you're like, Oh, I can kind of just do this without thinking that you, you may not be ready to compete with Kelly Slater yet, but like, that is a type of mastery, right? You, you now can do the thing consistently at a way that you don't have to like focus every ounce of attention on making sure that everything's going in the right place. So, yeah, I, I I love that concept of mastery, both as the sort of internal never ending journey. um, But I would just encourage people to have a broad consideration of it. And it's like, it can just be really good competency where you, where you are in control of your tools. Like that's a nice feeling. It feels good to be useful and competent.
0: And it's also once you understand what that feeling is, your ability to leverage it into other areas is dramatically increased because you found out, you know, cracks in the facade of what it, what you thought mastery was or what it could be. And I find that, you know, you already mentioned again, Tim Ferriss. Tim has, you know, he's world champion at X and, you know, X number of New York Times bestsellers and Y number of, you know, he's just like he's done a lot of things because, you know, learn what makes you tick in the process, what some of the constraints are, how to transcend those constraints. What are the rules? What, which ones do you break? There's a, There are some patterns in there that I think are, are meaningful. And to have watched you do that with, um, gosh, with design, with manufacturing, um, with homemade modern, with so many things, has just been an absolute treat. Um, legendary guest. This goes down as one of my favorite conversations, and I believe most insightful for people who actually want to do the thing that ben does in the world which is make shit for cool people do it your way um and make the world a better place engaging your sustainability and, and uh i'm gonna beg you to come back on the show before we do Love i'm to. hoping to, to to steer uh folks who are again new to your work to some of the other places i mentioned your youtube channel but you have an instagram uh, obviously facebook and a handful of other things but can you share a couple of your handles on the internet so people can um instagram though... is the
1: best is the best place to start um, okay. because that's where i sort of preview any projects that i'm working on right now we're working on recycling 30 foot long windmill blades we're working on a bunch of uh recycled plastic projects um we're getting ready to build another house so instagram is just benjamin and then u y e d a my last name but if you put in benjamin and the letter u i normally pop up there pretty quickly um and then from there you Say your of, say continue.
0: your last name for say your last name for Ueda Ueda, Ueda. and yeah. yeah. and then again that's U Y E V A. in case you're uh, on a jog right now I'm going to say it out loud um, and you couldn't write it down and what are you say mention Insta
1: as your preferred um, that's and... the best broad entry point for, for yeah. someone else. The YouTube is sort of where the projects get posted, but not mm-hmm. always that active on there, kind of hit or miss. And there's two YouTube channels. If you're interested in the Shipping Container House project, which what a lot of people are, that's the Modern Home project. But if you just put in my name, Ben and Shipping Container House, it shows up. That's the great thing about these... These. It's funny. Early on, I was so worried about like, oh, we're going to get the call sign right and get the, the plug. It's like god bless google i mean like geez they really make it easy to find these kind of things so um yeah ch- uh, check it out um some of it will be great so hopefully some of it's useful to you and uh yeah instagram i'm reasonably good at answering dms don't get to all of them but don't feel afraid to try
0: awesome ben thank you so much for being a standout thank guest. you really really grateful to finally connect after seeing your stuff all over the internet for years um Kudos to you and uh, just grateful for your time today. Thank you so much. And congratulations my pleasure. It was so success. much fun. All right, everybody Thanks out there me. on the internet, please pay attention to Ben and his work, the lessons that were shared in this video or in this uh, podcast, um, 11 out of 10 in my book. And you should have been taking notes if you weren't. Go back and read this and watch uh, how you consumed it. And signing off. Until next time, I bid you adieu. All right. Hey, before you go, thank you so much for listening. And I want you to know that I appreciate the time, the attention that you give to this show, to the guests, and to yours truly. And I wanted to take a second to say thank you. This community, like any community, is a testament to the saying that a rising tide lifts all boats. By elevating one another, by sharing and resharing the show, the tidbits that you learn, the experiences that you take away from here we can collectively have a massive positive impact on the world. Now, whether you're new here to my orbit or you've been here for a decade, I would encourage you to think about how you can show up for your peers, for your fellow creators and the people in your life that you really know and care about. And one way of doing that is to share this podcast. If you got any value from one of these shows or if you've been listening for a long time, You're spreading the love means the world to me. That's how this show gets out. We don't spend a dollar on paid advertising for the show. It's you and me and the guests on the show that help reach new people every week. So I wanted to say thank you. I wanted to remind you that the only way this thing grows is if we grow together. and, And I'm grateful for any and all action that you take to that end. All right, that's a wrap. Let's put today's episode into practice and get back to growing together.